So, what was once one nation is now two nations. Just three generations from Israel's first king, the region now has two kings. To the south is David's grandson, Rehoboam, a hot-headed and sadistic ruler whose recklessness has seen ten of Israel's twelve tribes walk away. This remnant retains the great city of Jerusalem and its magnificent temple, but renames itself after its dominant tribe, Judah. To the north, the other ten tribes still refer to themselves as Israel. They have their own king, Jeroboam, and this king has erected two controversial worship sites, so his people needn't cross the border into Judah and have their heads turned by Rehoboam. These worship sites take the form of golden calves. Despite God being so angry at the construction of a calf effigy much earlier on in Israel's story that he had to be persuaded by Moses not to wipe the entire nation off the face of the earth. These certainly are interesting times, as one nation keeps the sacred bloodline of David alive, while the other sings to its own more profane tune. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 80, Man Whores. Episode 80, folks. That's certainly something. If nothing else, the fact that you're still listening makes this all worthwhile. For any newbies, I'm neither a priest nor a theologian, but I am an advertising creative director, and much of what I do in my day job is to take complex information and turn it into something that's reasonably simple to grasp. Why the Bible? I once heard a Dutchman say the word Bible, and he said Weibel instead. I imagined the Bible and how it might look, a kind of vibe of the Bible, the rough gist of everything. That was over 10 years ago, and the Bible has morphed into what you see here today, the Holy Bible Podcast. Anyway, enough backstory, the nation of Israel has split in two, and while that is a disaster for national security and economic well-being, it does make for plenty of drama. Here we go. Jeroboam is worshipping at his altar in Bethel, a prophet who appears to have been sent by God pays the king a visit. The unnamed prophet who arrives in Bethel has a message for Jeroboam. A future descendant of David named Josiah will rip down the shrine here, sacrifice its priests and scatter their bones. It is a remarkable prophecy as Josiah doesn't reign for another 300 years. The prophet announces that Jeroboam will know that his message is from God, as the altar where the king has been worshipping will split in two, scattering the ashes. Unimpressed, Jeroboam attempts to arrest the prophet, at which point the outstretched arm which he is using to give the order withers. The altar then splits in two. Desperate, Jeroboam begs the holy man to ask God to heal him. It is a sign of how far the people's faith has slipped that the king refers to God as your God and not just God. The prophet prays and the arm is healed. Now in better spirits, the king invites the stranger to share a meal with him and offers to give him a gift, but the prophet refuses. 
even if he is offered half the kingdom, he is to decline any hospitality and return home to Judah via a different route. Interestingly, the story now stops being about the king and focuses on the prophet and his onward journey. The man sets off, but an older prophet who lives in Bethel hears about his visit. His sons tell him what the prophet said to the king and which route he took out of the town. The old man has his son saddle up his donkey and he rides after the visitor from Judah, who he finds sitting under an oak tree. He invites the stranger home for a meal, but still the prophet sticks to his guns. Like the US mail, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night can stay this courier from the swift completion of his appointed rounds. He believes that God has forbidden him to eat or drink until he has returned home. It is at this point that the older man announces that he too is a prophet and that an angel has told him to invite the younger man to his home. It's a blatant lie, but the younger man is sold and accompanies his new best friend back to Bethel to eat and drink with him. Midway through the meal, the old man cries out, denouncing the younger prophet for not sticking to his divine orders. According to the book, God is speaking through the older prophet and he promises the younger man that when he dies, he will not be buried with his ancestors, a mark of deep shame in Old Testament times. The old man saddles up his donkey again and places the younger prophet on it, sending him on his way. However, news soon reaches Bethel that the man was mauled to death by a lion and was found dead on the roadside with the lion and the donkey standing next to it. When the old man hears what has happened, he is convinced that God punished the younger prophet for failing to carry out his orders. The older man rides out to where the attack happened and finds the prophet's body with the lion and donkey still standing next to it. To add weight that this is a divine act, the book reports that the lion has neither eaten the corpse nor attacked the donkey. The prophet places the dead man on the animal and brings him back to Bethel where he mourns for him, laying him in his own tomb and grieving him like a brother. He then tells his sons that he wishes to be buried alongside the prophet when he dies, as the man's words against Bethel will all come true. This episode is one of the strangest in the Bible, and it remains a mystery why an elderly prophet in Bethel feels the need to test the obedience of a younger prophet from Judah. For a start, what is the old prophet doing in Bethel, given that it is a hotbed of pagan worship? To be operating so close to the epicentre of evil is putting himself needlessly in harm's way. If the older prophet truly has the ear of God, why doesn't God send him instead of a messenger all the way from Judah? Either way, the older man seems properly upset at what happens to his compatriot. This odd passage may be included in the Bible to represent how much both kingdoms of Israel and Judah are underachieving when it comes to godliness. That said, the older prophet's promise that the younger man would be buried away from his family does come true. Many Bible commentators use this as an example for Christians to be on guard, but the whole passage appears to divert from the far greater crisis unfolding as Jeroboam leads his people away from God. 
Sadly, the experience at the altar has absolutely no effect on the king, who continues to turn the priesthood into a free-for-all, allowing anyone who applies to tend Israel's hilltop shrines. He may be far from a godly king, but when Jeroboam's son falls ill, he doesn't rely on his golden calves or local prophets. Clearly believing in the power of God to heal his sick child, the king dispatches his queen to Judah, telling her to go incognito so that no one recognises her. She is to travel to Shiloh in Judah to find Ahijah, the robe-tearing prophet who originally told her husband that he would be king. Wearing disguise and carrying a hamper filled with bread, cake and honey, the queen sets off to find out what will happen to her child. By now, Ahijah is old and blind, but he doesn't need eyes to know that he is being played. The book explains that he has received a message from God, telling him everything in advance. In one of the most satisfying reckonings in the Bible, the prophet greets the queen with the news that she has been rumbled. Instead of hearing her plea, Ahijah has a message for her to take back to Jeroboam. The general thrust is that God chose her husband to lead his people, tearing a huge swathe of the kingdom from Rehoboam and giving it to him. But far from ruling in the same godly style as David, Jeroboam has perpetrated more evil than anyone who has lived before him. The king has made effigies of other gods and has turned his back on the actual God. For this, God will cut off every man in Jeroboam's kingdom and he will burn his people like farmers burn animal dung. Dogs will eat those who die in the city and birds will pick the bones of those who die in the country. Before he sends her on her way, Ahijah tells the queen that her sixth son will die as soon as she arrives back home. He assures her that unlike anyone else in his family, the boy will be mourned and buried as he is the only one in whom God has found any redeeming qualities. Ahijah promises that God will raise up a king over Israel who will cut off Jeroboam's family. This king will shake Israel like a reed and scatter the nation beyond the river Euphrates. God is furious with the king, he tells her. He is furious with him for introducing pagan worship and for turning his people away from him. The disgust in which God appears to hold the queen's husband is palpable and the horror can only be imagined when she returns home to the city of Tirzah and realises that her beloved child has just died. The entire nation mourns him, but the writing is on the wall for Israel. It's uncertain when or why Jeroboam moved his base from Shechem to Terzah, but it was probably to avoid the danger of living in a border town. The king reigns for 22 years in total, and the book tells readers that his son Nadab becomes Israel's next commander-in-chief. After its detour to the north, the book now returns to Judah, where Rehoboam is still king. From now until the end of the two books of Kings, the Bible toggles between Israel and Judah, chronicling the lives of both countries' monarchs in a somewhat encyclopedic fashion, informing readers matter-of-factly whether the monarch was seen to have done good or evil in the eyes of God. With Israel in disarray, it falls to Rehoboam to keep the national mojo on track. 
He's recorded as being 41 when he begins his reign, and his mother is not an Israelite. She is one of Solomon's many foreign brides and comes from the nearby kingdom of Ammon. Given that Solomon himself is half Hittite, this absence of pure blood can be seen as a sign that the monarchy has already become diluted. Rehoboam rules in Jerusalem for 17 years, and while he is king, Judah's fall from grace is every bit as spectacular as Israel's. Far from being the poster children of God worship, Judah's people succumb to the religion of their pagan neighbours, just as much as Israel does under Jeroboam. People erect Asherah poles and sacred stones on every hilltop and under every shady tree. There are even male prostitutes installed in pagan shrines, men who perform sexual acts, possibly as some kind of fertility cult. All of these religious practices belong to the culture of the nations which Israel drove out of Canaan and have no place in Jewish religious life. Sensing vulnerability, Judah's old southern ally Egypt launches an audacious attack on Jerusalem. The raid is financially and emotionally catastrophic for the nation, as Pharaoh Shisak walks away with a haul that includes all the treasure in both the temple and the royal palace. Shisak's soldiers remove the 500 golden shields commissioned by Solomon and bring them back to Egypt. Lacking the wealth to replace them now that his country has shrunk in size so dramatically, Rehoboam has bronze replacements made, which are stored away and only brought out for ceremonial use when he visits the temple. As with all the accounts of the kings in this book, readers are directed to the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Judah or the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Both of these volumes appear to contain much more detail of the events that happened during the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, but frustratingly, neither account survives. All that the first book of Kings has left to say about Solomon's son is that he remains in a state of almost constant war with Jeroboam. On his death, Rehoboam is buried with David, while his son Abijah is left to get Judah back into God's good books, something he is woefully ill-equipped to do, despite his name meaning, God is my father. Given the high hopes the nation had as its people were led across the Jordan by Joshua, and again at the dedication of the temple by Solomon, the fall from grace is crushing. Abijah turns out to be every bit as useless as his father. His mother is a granddaughter of David's rebel son Absalom, and his faith is just as lacklustre as Rehoboam's. Abijah only reigns for three years, and even though he is never fully devoted to God, the book tells its readers that he is a lamp that is kept alight for David's sake, so that he can produce an heir and thereby strengthen Jerusalem. It is the bloodline of David that is critical throughout this book, and as long as Judah's kings can keep producing male heirs, the promised glorious and eternal future of the dynasty remains a possibility. David is almost deified by the writer. This golden king never committed a single wrong, except in his dealings with Bathsheba and Uriah. Readers know that this is untrue, David's insistence on counting his soldiers towards the end of his reign results in a calamitous plague that kills thousands of his own people. 
Abijah spends most of his reign fighting Jeroboam, and when he dies, he is buried in Jerusalem, leaving his much more competent son Asa in charge of the kingdom. Asa proves to be one of Judah's few God-fearing kings, and kicks off his reign by getting his country back within the diktat of the Israelites' religious codes. He rids his nation of all the pagan paraphernalia set up by his witless father, extraditing any prostitutes plying their trade in pagan shrines and destroying any idols. Asa's grandmother proves to be a liability for the king. Maka is Absalom's daughter and she has created some kind of image which she can use to worship the pagan goddess Asherah. For this, she is deposed from her position as Queen Mother, an honorary title for the most senior woman in the royal family. Asa tears down the image and burns it outside the city walls in the Kidron Valley, but fails to remove all the pagan places of worship from Judah's hilltops. Still, he remains dedicated to God throughout his reign, and also contributes silver and gold to the temple treasury. Asa tears down the image and burns it outside the city walls. Throughout his rule, Asa battles with Baasha, king of Israel, who has seized Samuel's old stronghold of Ramah. Samuel was the last of Israel's judges and the man who identified the boy David as a future king of Israel. Now a border town, Baasha has fortified Ramah in an attempt to control traffic in and out of Judah. Asa empties the temple coffers, adds the treasure to his own, then uses the silver and gold to persuade the Aramean king Ben-Hadad I to break a treaty which he has with Israel. Weakened, Baasha will have to pull back from fighting Judah. The kingdom of Aram centres itself around the city-state of Damascus in present-day Syria, and it was last seen in the Bible suffering devastating military losses against David. Clearly not one to hold a grudge, Ben-Hadad sends troops into Israel, seizing four major cities, the region around the Sea of Galilee, and the entire tribal territory of Naphtali. Baasha immediately stops his construction work on Ramah and retreats to Israel's new capital, Tirzah, leaving Asa's troops free to carry off his building materials to fortify some of their own cities. The only other information readers are given about Judah's godly ruler is that he suffers from foot problems in later life and that his son Jehoshaphat succeeds him as king. The action swings northwards as readers are given a snapshot of what is happening in Israel while Abijah and Asa rule Judah. Just when Israel needs a decent ruler to pull everyone back in line with the teachings laid down under Moses, the country descends ever further into a moral abyss. The kings who follow Jeroboam are united only by their bloodthirstiness and complete absence of faith in the God who, at the time, Israel believed inaugurated the monarchy. First to the throne is Jeroboam's son, Nadab. The writer describes him as equally evil as his father and his reign is mercifully short. While he is besieging the Philistine city of Gibbethon, one of his own army captains murders him and seizes his crown. This man is Baasha. Not wanting to risk any savage act of revenge, Baasha strikes first, cutting down everyone in Jeroboam's entire family. The book sees this as the fulfilment of the promise made to Jeroboam by the prophet Ahijah. For failing to follow God, he will burn up his family like dung.
Saul was a dreadful king, but things began looking up for Israel's monarchy with David and his son Solomon. Their reigns formed a true golden age. Now the kingdom is divided along tribal lines as the ten tribes that now form Israel are subject to godless kings who appear to have abandoned the teachings of Moses, opting instead for the more fleshly delights of pagan worship. Judah to the south is not much better, though Asa does what he can to clear up the mess left by his father Rehoboam. Things are about to get worse for both nations. A whole lot worse. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you have any comments or feedback, please email contact at holybible.com. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a review wherever you're listening and tell other people who you think might enjoy this podcast. Thank you very much and see you next time.